everybody? You're listening to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. This is Dave Stovall, your host, and today's episode is actually the last track session that the Bonhoeffer Project gave at our National Disciple Making Forum last year. It starts off with Dan Lights. He's the current CEO of the Bonhoeffer Project, along with Cindy Perkins and Jim Thomas. They talk to us about the nitty gritty of shifting a church culture from programs to being a genuine discipleship-based church. I really enjoyed the personal stories from Dan on being successful with this and also telling stories of failing at this. We know that discipleship is never easy. These are people we're dealing with and it can get pretty messy. I was encouraged by today's episode and I believe you will be as well. So let's go ahead and jump into this. This is Dan Lights, Cindy Perkins, and Jim Thomas at the National Disciple Making Forum. Here we go. Today we're going to be talking about something that is really near and dear to my heart. Uh, just to give you guys a little background on, on who I am. I'm uh, the senior pastor of a uh, church called Calvary Chapel Oceanside in Oceanside, California. It's a uh, suburb of San Diego, uh, North County, San Diego, right by Camp Pendleton for anybody who's in the Marines or knows uh, of Camp Pendleton, Navy as well. Um, and I've been serving there on staff for the better part of 14 years now. For uh, 11 of those years, 12, 12 uh, let's go up 11. For 11 of those years, I was an associate pastor, and I've pretty much done everything except for women's ministry, but um, I, I wanted a shot at it, but they, they told me I wasn't allowed to do that. And it brought me to a place, and a critical place in my ministry, which we'll get to in a second, but uh, before I get into those details, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you so much for this time that we can have together today. God, this is a, a pivotal session, God, I think, in, in many senior leaders' lives and those who lead ministries, God, to understand the importance of uh, it going all the way from the top down, um, that it would get into the DNA. So God, I, I pray that you would help um, in this moment, God, to open the mind to what it is that you would have us to do and to uh, help us understand uh, what it is that your heart is for the disciple making in the church context. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so I wanted to give you kind of a little background story. I shared a little bit of this story in our first session, but really here's the gist of it. So um, at the end of 2018, our senior pastor passed away from a, a long story short, he, he suffered for about 30 years with a, an illness that caused a lot of problems in his body and eventually his kidneys gave up. So December, 2018, my pastor and friend, Mike Reed, uh, went home to be with Jesus and it was a, a beautiful celebration. He was a very loved man. We had to rent out the Junior Seau Amphitheater in Oceanside. Um, because there were 6,000 people that came to his memorial. So he, he was very beloved. And in that moment, I found myself a few weeks afterwards being asked to become the senior pastor of this church. People that I knew, people that I loved, these are people that are they're, they're family at that point. And I get to this place where I had what I would call a mid-ministry crisis because it's one thing if you're an associate guy, you're just backing up, you're, you're being that Joshua, right? You're holding up the arms of the guy and you're doing that ministry that you know how to do. And it was a, a great and phenomenal way to serve the Lord by serving my senior pastor and holding up his arms. But then that moment became very critical where I was then given that mantle, that, that, that role in leadership. And so I started to have this kind of angsty anxiousness going on in my heart. God, what are we to do as the church? You would think that answering the question, what are we as the church to do, would be a simple uh, question to answer. But up until that point, our church, it, it was and still is, it's a vibrant, beautiful church uh, in, in San Diego. I mean, what, what better place to do ministry? And, and the weather is always great. And I mean, it's, it's like a thing when there's rain. Like we're like, everybody talks about it, right? This is a thing, it's raining. And so everything's beautiful, everything's great, but my heart wasn't there. What's going on? And so I had this mid-ministry crisis where, again, I won't bore you with all the details, but I came to this understanding that the church that I know and love was busy multiplying ministries, not multiplying people, not multiplying disciples. We were making ministries. We were multiplying ministries. We were, you want to do a ministry? It was like Oprah handing out ministries. You get a ministry and you get a ministry, whatever you wanted to do. 
You wanted to do a, a, a bike riding ministry, you get a ministry. You get a name, a bike riding ministry will get you a, a place from the, the top stage. You get to tell everybody about your ministry and get people to join. We had at one point 98 ministries in our church. Right. I mean, you talk about logistical admin nightmare. That's what that was. But I looked around, and although we had discipleship as part of our bylaws, although we had discipleship as part of uh, ministry names, there wasn't actual discipleship happening. Now, I don't say that there was none, because the Holy Spirit's bigger than that. I guarantee you there were those who were engaged in genuine relational disciple-making. But it was not part of the DNA of the church. The DNA of the church was to multiply ministries. And so I had this crisis recognizing that ministry wasn't what we were to multiply, but disciples, people. I was told about the National Disciple Making Forum. I was like, wow, there's such a thing? And I was floored by that. And so I came here two years ago. I sat in that chair where your backpack's at. I sat in that chair and I, I, I listened to Bill Hull talk about disciple making. But here's the thing. I came to that conference that year with an empty suitcase. Now, I had a bag, had my, you know, my things in it to make sure that I was smelling all right. But I had an extra suitcase because you know what? I'm going to come home with a plan. Any of you guys like buying good quality merchandise? Right? So, okay. So I'm the type of guy that loves to buy the best. The reason that I like to buy the best is because if you buy the worst or the cheesy or the knockoff, you're going to have to buy it again. I like the best. This is why, right, you ever shopped at Harbor Freight? You know, you all have Harbor Freight out here, right? Harbor Freight Tools is a place that you go to buy a tool that you know is going to die. This is why when you purchase it, they ask you, would you like the warranty? That is more of a warning than anything else. They say, hey, this is going to die mid-project. Would you like to be able to, for free, come and grab a new one? You do or you don't. But I don't like those tools. I, I, I like them if I'm going to do one project. And I know it's going to just need that one tool for that one thing. But if I need something that's going to have to last me because I want to use it over and over and over again, I'm going to have to buy the best. And so what I do is I shop on Craigslist. I shop on OfferUp. I try and find somebody who has the best but got the better one of the best. And so now they're selling their second best. And I buy that one. I love that. So I am a best kind of guy. I want the best. So I came with that extra suitcase because I wanted the best. My goal coming to this conference two years ago was to bring that suitcase home full of material. What my plan was, was to go to every booth and say, what y'all got? What y'all selling, right? How many, anybody here for that, right? You got that idea? You're like, no, I don't want them to make fun of me later. I had the mindset of going to this conference and getting the best curriculum because I want my church to have the best. Noble. That's what I want. I want God's people to experience the best that God has for them. My heart was that they'd be raised up as disciples. But as I got all of this material and I came into this conference sitting right in that chair with a suitcase next to me full of the greatest material, I realized at that moment that I missed something. Because what my heart was going to be was I'm going to hire a discipleship guy and I'm going to have him read all this stuff because this is a lot to read. <laughs> I, I, I bought some curriculum that was like four and five books worth and I'm like, man, I do not have time to read that. I got four kids at home with homeschool, ministry. I can't read that much. I got all the books that I have to read already on top of this. So I, I, I'm going to hire a guy. He's going to be my discipleship pastor and he's going to read all those for me. And then he's going to tell me which is the one we need to integrate, the one that we need to add on to what we're doing. The 99th ministry called discipleship. At that moment, as I sat here listening to Bill, as I listened to Ben at the time, Ben Sobels, as I listened to Cindy, who was up here as well, 
I started realizing that there was something that I was missing. I was looking for discipleship to be another add-on. Another thing that we did. The Bonhoeffer Project really opened my eyes because what they said, and it's something that you see on the, the banner right as you come into the door, the gospel you preach, the gospel you proclaim determines the disciple you make. What they challenged me with was, Dan, if you're not preaching the correct gospel from the pulpit, then no matter what curriculum you give, there's going to be an inconsistency. Because all the curriculum that's out there, all of it, is good. I love it. Every booth out here, every table has really good stuff at it. Some stuff that I even use at my own church, in my own context. But the understanding that I missed is unless I was all on board, our church was never going to get it. Unless I understood it in a holistic mindset, unless I was doing it, it was never going to take root. It would only be just a ministry. It'd be just another thing. And this is what happens with ministries. For those of you that have been part of churches and leadership, right? We've got a new initiative, a new campaign, there's a new ministry launch. And so we set up the date and there's going to be a band and we got balloons and t-shirts and giveaways and there's sign-up sheets and everybody's signing up. Six months from then, a year from then, people are like, hey, whatever happened to that, that one thing that we were doing? What, are there anybody, is anybody doing that still? And we have to come back to the conference the next year to find the newer thing, to buy it. The truth of the matter is we didn't have um, a limited amount of resources. I was going to throw everything at this problem. We were going to buy the best. I was going to hire the best. And we we're going to give our people the best because they deserve the best. But God shone a spotlight on my heart and said, Dan, if you're not doing it and if it's not important to you, how can you expect it to be important to your people? And that was a dagger to my heart. You see, as I grew up, and we talked about this in uh, session two, I was never discipled intentionally. I was discipled by the Holy Spirit. I was discipled by teachers, professors, discipled by friends, coworkers, family members. I was discipled in a, in a very passive, unintentional way. So when I hear the word discipleship, that's what I think, right? We think about our context. Some people, if you got saved in an altar call, you love giving altar calls. If you got saved in a different method, you like that different method, right? We, we a lot of times preach what we know or what happened to us. And so this must be the way. I was never discipled intentionally, so discipleship was never a part of my life. In the tribe that I'm in, very much so, it's the pulpit, the disciples. Some of you guys may be part of a network or a tribe that does that. That Hey, if I'm preaching the gospel from the pulpit, well, that's all you need. That's all the discipleship you need. But we all know, and it's one of the reasons we're here, we recognize that we have missed the boat in terms of disciple making. We have missed what it means to be a disciple maker and a disciple making leader, disciple making pastor and a disciple making church. We have missed the mindset that Jesus had when he gave the mandate, the directive to go therefore and do what I did. Jesus didn't have a perfect record. He missed one. Judas didn't make it. It even says, as we read in the gospels, that when Jesus preached about his body and blood, it says many people left, walked away, never followed him again. But for those who are, man, you and I both know, and this is why you're here, you understand something needs to change. And I am here to tell you, if you are a senior pastor or a senior leader, if it is not happening or if it does not start with you, you will never see change in your church. So that's what it caused me to do, to do a lot of self-examination. But it requires, I'll tell you this, a humble heart. In order to have that mindset of really making a culture shift, it needs to start with you. But in order for it to start with you, you need to humble yourself. You need to look at your culture and say, are we doing what God has called us to do? Have I outsourced disciple making? Is it a part of the DNA or is it just a tag on? Is it just a clip on ministry to what we do? Is it just so that I can say, yeah, we do discipleship? Because look, here it says it on the website. 
Are there people being changed because of what God is doing in your church? I'm going to bring up a panel of guys right now, fellas, if you guys want to come on up. And all of these guys are senior pastors or have been senior pastors. And so they can speak to this in, in, a, in a really holistic way and, and from a place of understanding. And although you may not be a senior pastor here, you may not be a senior leader here, this does go for everyone because, again, all of us are called. If you're called to Christianity, you're called to discipleship. No ifs, ands, no buts about it. If you're called to Christianity, you're called to discipleship. Even senior pastors. And so my question to my panel, I'm kind of go around, you, you raise your hand if you want to answer this. How do you keep, or how do we keep from programatizing discipleship? How do you keep discipleship as some of you may? You, you go out, you find the curriculum, like, well, we're going to do this. How do you keep that from becoming just another thing that you do? Well, I, I would say, um, first of all, by what you model more than anything. I, I've, uh, you know, said for years, uh, you know, my mission in life is uh, making disciples one breakfast, one lunch, one dinner at a time. And, you know, people just know me uh, from from that. Uh, they, they they know that I'm constantly just getting together, sitting down and talking to people. So it's been very relational at the, at the heart of it. But I would say, secondly, you have to keep reinforcing it by saying it. You have to say a million times, uh, this is not about a program. This is about relationships. This is about discipleship. Yeah, we call that ad nauseum, right? <laughs> until your people are getting sick of you saying it, but until you hear your people repeating it to you, yeah. we need to continue to repeat it, right? I think I think the key with this, and I'm, I'm from the Southern Baptist tribe, so we live and die by the program, um, is moving away from that to a different type of worldview, a worldview that centers around the change of the culture of our church to becoming a disciple-making church. Uh, I had a pastor in Texas one time uh, who I was under who said this, the church is not a destination, it's a base of operation. And many people think that the church in itself is simply a destination. It's a place the church exists for them. They are to come, they are to receive, they are to consume and for them, their kids, their families, they want everything there. My sister goes to a church, large church, and you can do everything there but sleep there. <laughs> you can eat there. You can have business meetings there. You can work out there. You can worship there. You can go to school there. You can do all that stuff, right? And it's a destination for them. Um, but the church, at least according to Acts, is a base of operation. It's the sending out of the people of God to expand the kingdom of God in the world. And if we start to understand that, then we can start to create a culture toward that end. Um, I read a, a quote and, uh, by J.R. Woodward about culture. I think some of us think that culture may be a dirty word, right? That when we think culture, we think fleshly culture, worldly culture. Culture is simply the place we live, right? He lives in San Diego culture where it's 75 degrees all year long. I live in Atlanta that in the summer you just sweat upon sweat. Right, because it's 140,000 percent humidity. <laughs> right, so those are just different cultures. You you act different. He eats a salad. I fry everything. Praise God. Right. Um, so what if culture isn't a dirty word? It's simply the place we live and how we interpret the world around us. Then what are the elements of culture? And I love what J.R. Woodward. He has a book called Creating a Missional Culture, but he gives us several. Things. He says this, culture is simply the language we live in, the artifacts that we make use of, the rituals we engage in, our approach to ethics, the institutions we're a part of, and the narratives or stories that we tell. Okay, so I'll just list those out. Language, artifacts, rituals, ethics, institutions, and narratives. When you look at culture like that, then you look at the life of the church and go, how do we change, first of all, evaluating all of those things in the culture that you're in as a senior leader, or even not as a senior leader, and then say, if we want and we feel called by God, which we are, to transform churches into disciple-making cultures, how do all of those things lead us that way? And it's going to take time. I'm in a church that's 192 years old this year. It takes time to turn the Titanic, right? Especially if it has holes in it. And so there's a lot of work to do, and you have to be patient in doing that. But as you address these specific issues that culture revolves around, 
then you can start taking steps forward to seeing a culture of disciple making take root where programs, this is your original question, aren't the end, they're simply the means to lead you to the desired end. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and, and I agree with what both of these guys said. The only thing I'll add is, you know, something that's been helpful for, for me is to just the phrase think injection, not addition. Think injection, not addition. I think um, a lot of times, you know, I think we're guilty of thinking, okay, what, like, what program do I need to add? What's the silver bullet? Tell me that discipleship thing that you're doing that's making those magical disciples that just live in love like Jesus and it's like it, it's it's not so much we do help people create a disciple making plan for their church and there, it does need to be a level of structure to it but like these guys are saying there has to be a culture that is created and um, as a lead pastor as a leader of any organization i think you're the defender of the culture and there are constantly attacks on the culture that you're trying to create everyone who walks in the doors of your church has a vision for what the culture should be and, and that's something that we're all constantly bombarded with. And so this culture that you're creating through the stories that you're telling that are coming from your personal life, the stories you're telling, the things you're measuring, the questions that you're asking are all creating this culture. And once that culture is created, I think we were having this conversation the other day, it doesn't just stay there forever. You're constantly guarding against that. Uh, when everybody comes in and says, well, you know what? I love this church. It's all about making disciples. But I really think this basket weaving thing would really minister to the people <laughs> of our city. And, and I think part of my job as a pastor is I'm constantly saying why. And that comes across, well, you're, you're supposed to be nice. You're a pastor. Well, sometimes you got to get mean about living for Jesus, right? This thing's serious. And so why should we do that? Well, I mean, the church there, they do it. Well, go there and let them do it for you, you know? But why, why, why? Well, we got to get back to what is our, our why is making disciples. So how does this help us further our goal of making disciples? So I'll just circle back and say, think injection into everything that you do as a church, not just an additional program. How does every single thing we do help further our cause of making disciples? Yeah, no, no more. Yeah, no. <laughs> We're senior pastors, and we have a forum. Um, not only the defender of the culture, I fully agree with that, but the definer of the culture. And I think that's key. In fact, one of the things we've done in our discipleship plan is create a glossary of terms. At the back of our disciple-making plan, we have a glossary. What is the gospel? What is a disciple? What is grace? And so what we've done is created common language among our leaders in our church, that we're all in agreement about. And so from preschool through senior adults, the pastoral staff, which is now being passed on to lay leadership and down the line, if you will, are saying the same things across the culture. Yeah. Guess what? That changes the culture. Because everybody who walks into your church, I can't say everybody, we talked about this yesterday, Dan, yeah. but a lot of the people who walk in your church, you ask one question like, what is the gospel? You're going to get that many answers, right? What is a disciple? You're going to get that many answers. So if we can lead people to start defining things, this is key, biblically, and that become the common language of the church, all of a sudden we're changing, because language changes culture, right? It's one of the key changes in, in, in helping us move forward in culture. Let me throw another question out to you guys, because again, the culture change that you're talking about, I think for many of us, it was me, uh, there's a mindset that we want the culture to change quickly, right? We are a fast food a culture. Um, if you're a little overweight, don't they have a pill? Isn't there a, 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 a diet that like in three weeks, I can be back into the size that I used to be, you know, when I was 15. Um, there's a, there's a, a push for that instant success. How do we, again, just as, as I know, Jim, you've... Um, you spent a while now trying to change the culture. Uh, Hollis, you're changing the culture from outside to a certain extent at the moment. And Stephen, you got to start from the beginning of changing the culture. Kind of explain each one of you how that culture, the speed, the process, and, and the patience you probably need to have with it. Well, I uh, was the founding senior pastor of the church uh, 24 years ago. And I had been, I had come up through Campus Crusade. In fact, Bill Hall was my first, one of my first directors in, in the Crusade with Athletes in Action. So I kind of had that DNA of, of discipleship built in, in me, and I took it right into the pastorate. And early
early on, um, I think the, the first year actually that we planted the church, uh, we implemented uh, Greg Ogden's Discipleship Essentials. We had like 150 people that went through it, and it got into the second and third generation and so forth. But it was pretty much a program, and it kind of, you know, it had it was a nice moment in time, but <laughs> it sort of passed. And uh, fast forward then to, you know, 12 years into it, um, I decided to step back. I was 62 years old at the time, and I decided I wanted to step back from being senior pastor and spend the last season of my ministry uh, you know, doing what I was really passionate about doing, which was discipleship. And uh, I had a guy that had been with me uh, from the beginning, so it was an easy handoff in, in that sense. And I spent the next 10 years now, or, well, not 12 years, <laughs> um, uh, you know, trying to, you know, really intentionally build a culture of discipleship. And uh, as I look back on it now, I, I think what I didn't understand was just how stinking hard that was going to be. I mean, it, it, it takes more intentionality, more uh, forcefulness, you know, more ruthlessness than I could have ever imagined. And so here, here we are now, and I'm, you know, I'm no longer the senior pastor, but um, when I came in here, I, actually, Dan, I think I was at the same one you were at. Yeah. It was the one before COVID. Correct. And, I'm, and I, I think we were sitting right over there. And, um, you know, it had the same impact on me. It just turned my life upside down because I found a number of, you know, kind of key insights and principles of problems about discipleship that had been rattling around my head for years. And I walked out of here thinking, you know, God, you just answered a prayer I've been praying for the last 10 years. Now, I, we had built a, an infrastructure of discipleship programs and things like that. But I think it was after I went home from, the, 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 um, from this conference and uh, Leo, uh, who was with me here, uh, who many of you know, you know, we started reading the books. We started getting together and processing them together. I started teaching the stuff in my church. And, and so we started to add on some of the missing pieces at that point, like the gospel you preach is going to be the, you know, the disciples you make. Um, and, and I'm now, I've got one foot in Bonhoeffer and I've got the other foot in the church. I'm actually going to finish up in, Jan in January and I'll... And I'll uh, uh, I'll be a volunteer, and I'll continue to have ministry at the church. But I still don't feel like we're, we're there. We've defined it. I wrote up a seven steps to creating a culture of discipleship. Uh, we're, we're pretty intentional. We're much more intentional now about you know hitting those those markers and keeping it in front of people. Uh, and you know we have gotten to the point where we're starting to hear people say to us what we said to them. And so you go, okay, it's, it's actually happening, and now I'm out of the church. I can't. <laughs> yeah. um, but because I was a senior pastor for 12 years, it gave me a lot of uh, you know, capital with people that I, that I could have an inordinate influence, even though I wasn't a senior pastor. And our current senior pastor really has kind of embraced it, uh, along with the next guy who's going to succeed him in another year. So we, we've had this longevity of pastors that uh, have been together for a while, and, and that has been, in, but I still am kind of, um, you know, my biggest fear is that we would, you know, kind of fall back into just a program because I'm the, I'm the guy that has the DNA. Uh, the other guys think it's great, uh, you know, but it sort of became my ministry at some point instead of our ministry. And uh, so we've tried to recorrect that now by addressing it. But, um, yeah, I guess that's how I would how I'd answer it. It's... Uh, it is a very elusive thing, and you got to keep working at it, and you you got to just keep telling people this is not about programs. So, yeah, I'm in a, a different context. I planted a church uh, five years ago in California, and so there's some you know definite difficulties in starting a church from scratch, but uh, you get to put the DNA in it, and that's definitely a, a positive in being a church planner. Now, the hard thing is you, you have to define that, like Jim was saying, and you have to example that. And, and I feel like that's one of the more difficult things is because people say, okay, I get what you're saying, but like, what does that look like? And so uh, showing people what that looks like over and over again, for us, um, it kind of just, you know, culture builds out, I think, in circles. And so it started with our team getting that concept, and then it went out to a larger group of people, and then a larger group, and we see this thing start to, to spread throughout our church. And then once that culture's there, you defend it. And then the other thing, and honestly, this, I think maybe the hardest thing for, for us as pastors is keeping our eye on the ball um, because we're notorious for being like, okay, discipleship, yeah, how about that? Yeah. And um, for me, I don't know about you guys, but when I go to conferences, I don't ever get asked as a church planner, 
tell me about um, how discipleship's going in your church. I never get asked, tell me about, you know, life change and those kinds. What I get asked is, you know, how you guys doing? And what they mean is, how many are you running? How many people walking in the doors, right? That's what everybody's counting. And so the temptation is to say, man, you know what? Yeah, we we just, we got to shift everything. Forget this discipleship stuff. We're just going to grow this church and grow this ministry. And so that's what everybody's measuring in success. So keeping my eye on the ball, I think, is is probably the hardest thing and and maybe one of the most important things. Has anybody read uh, Todd Bolsinger's book, Canoeing the Mountains? Anybody read that? Several people in the room read that. It's about adaptive leadership in church. And it's taken out of uh, Heifetz and Linsky's work out of Harvard Business School and then applied to the local church, which is really phenomenal. Incredible book to read with my team through COVID <laughs> as we talk about adaptive leadership of stopping a 192-year-old church and changing the way we do things and spending six months teaching senior adults how to use the internet. You know, that type of thing going on as we as we had to shift one of the things that, that Bolsinger says is he, he, is, he deals with this issue of change. And he says change equates to loss, okay? Anytime, unless it's your idea, right? Anytime you initiate change, someone's going to lose something out of it, whether it's their comfort, whether it's their power, whether it's their position, whatever that happens to be, there's going to be loss associated with change. And I think we as leaders kind of freak out sometimes when we initiate this change because we're passionate about it and people push back against it. Well, the reason they're pushing back is because they're losing something, right? And so one of the things that Bolsinger says is you must introduce change at a rate that your people can absorb, okay? One of the things we say in the Bonhoeffer Project is this, don't announce the revolution just started, okay? So what we're saying is this, introduce change at a rate that your people can absorb it. I, my wife's cousin went to a church in North Atlanta. Uh, the pastor showed up on stage one Sunday, out of the blue, said, we're killing Sunday school. Now, in the South, you might that's like an apocalyptic moment, right? <laughs> so we're killing Sunday school. We're calling them small groups. We're going to put them in the homes, and we've assigned you a group. That was an announcement made on a Sunday morning, and they lost their almost their entire young adult ministry because of it. They just walked away and went to another church because, remember, people vote with their feet, right? And they almost lost the entire thing there because they could not absorb that loss that quickly, right? And so the idea of how do we, how do, we do this, how do we integrate uh, this type of change is why, with wisdom and over time. And uh, like I said, I came into a church uh, that's, that still has in their minutes what to do if Sherman marches through. Um, so we've been around a while, right? And I, I served at a, at a large church. It was my mega church experience. We had about 9,000 members in a, in a southern state. And one day, this translates into what happened at this church when I came as a senior leader. I was a youth pastor at the time. And a guy showed up in my office door. He knocked on the door. And he said, are you Pastor Jim? And I said, yes, I am. He said, I'm a single guy in the church, and I have a gift for you. And I went, okay, creepy. Um, but I listened, you know, and kind of backed up a little bit and he handed me a model of an aircraft carrier and on the side of the model, it was written the name of our church and he handed it to me. It's the last time I saw him in the whole time I, I was there because it was a large church, never ran into the guy again, assuming it was whatever. Yeah. I get real spiritual real yeah. quick on that. And this is what he said to me. It will move, but it'll take time. And I put the model of that aircraft carrier above my computer on a shelf so it would be in front of me every day to remember that this church, the church I was in at the time, had been there a long time. And degree by degree, it'll move. But if I try to to move that aircraft carrier like a speedboat, we're going to have some issues, right? So when I came to this church, uh, I'm at First Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia, just south of Atlanta. County seat church, First Baptist Church, swore I would never go back to a First Baptist Church because of everything associated with First Baptist Churches and tradition and lack of change and all that type of stuff. And then God said, shut up and go. And we've been there 10 years now. (laughs) And um, I remember the aircraft carrier. And we got our pastoral staff on board with a vision for a disciple-making culture. And then we had a couple, if I could call them this, good leaves from our staff. Didn't have to fire anybody, didn't have to have conflict. 
uh, one, our senior adult pastor retired. Our children's pastor wanted to be an associate pastor. So he just went. And then we, this is one thing we did different. We didn't just hire for competency or for chemistry. We hired based on vision. So I remember uh, interviewing someone for a discipleship pastor position, right? And I said, what's the last book you read on disciple making? He said, well, in seminary. And I went, <laughs> done. Not a consideration. Because if you're not doing it right now, you're not the guy to lead this right now. You need some preparation. You need someone pouring into you, right? And so we hired based on that vision. And so the staff that did come in, because the current staff took ownership of it, the staff that came in were already on board. Now we're all having the same language, the same vision, and starting to implement things on the ground is what Stephen was talking about, implementing things on the ground to help us to reach our goal. And our people, let me tell you, three years, three years before we saw culture change start to happen. Now, that may depress you or that may excite you. I don't know where you are right now. Three years before our people started repeating the language back to us. Four to five years before we saw um, on the ground movements starting to really get some jet fuel in them in disciple making relationships. And yet, I'm going to use a southernism here. We still had some stumps in the ground. And as a senior leader or as a staff member, you can spend a lot of your time trying to dig up the stump. And so we went with a different philosophy. We're going to plow around the stump. Doesn't mean we don't love the stump, but I want to go forward with the people that want to go forward. That person's going to gripe. We call them the usual suspects. That person's going to gripe regardless, right? Now, here's what I found about the stumps. When they get left alone, they get lonely. And instead of trying to enact their own vision for what the church ought to look like, they look up and see what's going on around them and see the life change. And we've had several of the stumps go, how can I get into a discipling relationship? That's a win, folks. But it takes time to see the culture change. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I was beginning that culture shift, I called a, a close friend of mine, and I, he, he had recently taken over a, about an 8,000-person church. And he had come in as the new guy. He was in it four years, and he was culture changing. And I said, give me some wisdom. And he said, Dan, you're on an aircraft carrier. <laughs> he goes, you're full steam at sea trying to turn while retrofitting the boat. Right. And the word kind of came to me, shepherd people through the change. Don't make them victims of the change. Oh. You need to shepherd your flock through the change. Don't say, oh, you lousy stump. Yeah. You know, we need to call it what it is. We're call Listen, how many times did Jesus be like, how, how long am I going to be with you people? Right? Okay. We can have that same mindset with the people. We can start looking at them as a, a inhibitor of our goals versus the people that Jesus died for. That yes, maybe a blessed subtraction at some point but also maybe somebody that God wants to do a miraculous work through and show us, demonstrate to us that he can still work even in that stuff. So for me, I think that is a, a, a great thing. One thing that we've said in our culture, and I've heard this said, I don't know who coined it, but the moment you're sick of saying something is the first time somebody's hearing of it, right? So we can't, you know, because we can say the, the, the definitions, one of the things the Bonhoeffer Project dives deep into because... Language is important. Language changes cultures. Language affects culture. If we're not saying the same things and meaning the same things, we can literally talk to each other and past each other at the exact same time. We think we're saying the same thing. We're not saying the same thing. Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. 
Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community. For disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org collective and sign up for your free membership today. All right, with that, I want to open it up to questions because I know these things can really stir up some, some questions on the practical, and I want to make sure we have enough time for that. Yeah, in the back. All right. Two quick questions. The first is this, um, just a clarity thing. Do you uh, would y'all say that all churches are aircraft carriers, or does that depend on like the history of it? So, for instance, a church plant is that an aircraft carrier, or could it switch faster because of you know the nature? He of likes jet skis, so he's in a jet ski. <laughs> right. We'll call it or, a jet ski. You, you know, so that that's the first quick question. Is yeah. like. Is it dependent on culture of the church as far as how long change takes? I'm going to just quick answer, yes. Um, For me, because I had in my church 34 years of previous this direction, or in Jim's case, 192 years, well, at that time, 182 years of, of direction. And so when you say, oh my gosh, we have not been making disciples with any intentionality, we have to figure that out. we got to get our heading, our bearing straight, and start turning. It's a big, it's a behemoth, right? In our case, it's a very large church. Large church, that's the aircraft carrier. Yeah, some various boat sizes, but if you're changing culture, you're dealing with that. You're dealing with the slow, methodical change where you're trying to shepherd people through them, not, through it, not making victims of it. Okay, and then the, the second thing related to, and this has to do with sport part, is uh, as church leaders, we have to evaluate what we're doing. Uh, and if we... And we can acknowledge that we've used inadequate scorecards, like we talked about that. Uh, so here's a question for each of you is, uh, what would be a part of a healthier scorecard for you that you currently use to evaluate as opposed to the Oscars? So you're asking, what are some things we should have on our scorecard? Or what do we have on our scorecard? Yeah, um, yeah, like some examples, if we're... I mean, maybe we tend toward programs. Absolutely. Oh, how many people do we have in it? This, I mean, so yeah. if we're not doing that, but we still want to evaluate what we're doing, what have y'all found that's been more helpful? Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, just a couple of days, we're at, at our church, you know, we're five years in, but one of the things we say about uh, in the uh, Bonhoeffer Project is, you know, the disciple-making plan, you create a living document. And so I've been in it for five years but I'm sitting in a session the other day going, oh, man, yeah, we got to start doing that better. Oh, man, we got to tweak this. Uh, I found uh, discipleship.org. I don't know if I can, can I promote their stuff. It's not ours. It's okay. Uh, discipleship.org had actually a metrics thing that I downloaded as a PDF. I'm like, man, we got to start doing some of this stuff. Uh, one of the main things that, that we ask at our church is we want to know are our people in disciple-making relationships. And so we did... Um, we dedicated a whole year. We called it in the water because we're close to the ocean and surfing's a big thing in California. And so um, one of the things that kind of stuck with us early on is a, a surfer told me you can't teach someone to surf from the beach. You have to get in the water with them. And, uh, and that was accurate because I was a boy from Alabama and, and couldn't figure out how to surf until a guy in my church said, I'll take you. And so we kind of took that and spun off a whole, um, for back, lack of a better word, a campaign for a year where we were asking our people, who are you in the water with? And so that's become one of our natural metrics. And we figured out some questions to how we define whether you're in the water with someone or not. And so in every single staff meeting we have, every small group we have, we're always asking the question, uh, do you have any in in the water moments to share? And what we're looking for is a metric for us um, is, do you have someone else that you're investing in? And so that would be one of the metrics. One of the things we're trying to get better at is figuring out, okay, we've said these components we want to see in a disciple. Well, how do we measure that to really know if we're doing that or not? And be honest, that's something that we're in process with and hoping to get better at. So if you've got some advice on that, I'd take some too. Anybody else? Anybody else want to answer that? Well, one of the things that you know I found helpful coming to this conference was uh, the definition that uh, and, and Bonhoeffer does a good job of helping you you know kind of define the gospel define a disciple and so forth so but probably the most uh, viral one going around is a disciple is one 
who is following Jesus, who is being changed by Jesus, and who is on mission for Jesus. And when you just think about that definition, you realize what's missing from a lot of people in the way they think about discipleship. And I think Bill Hall said this in one of his books. He said, the average pastor thinks that discipleship is gathering together a bunch of believers and having deeper Bible studies. So it, it basically terminates on kind of, you know, knowledge and growth. So one of the things that's kind of caught on, some of the language that's caught on, and it kind of goes to the issue of metrics is, um, are, are, is this information-based uh, discipleship or is this um, uh, obedience-based discipleship? So, you know, I, I've just seen how, how that language is bracing to people because we had a lot of people that were into information-based discipleship. And so all of a sudden they, they begin to shift and you, you begin to see these shifts in their thinking when they begin to use that language and they begin to talk about and you can bake it into questions that you use, you know, what did, what did you do this past week to actually apply or obey uh, what we talked about last week. So, you know, we've seen some, some significant shifts in that. We've seen some significant shifts in how many people are actually in discipling relationships and how, how many people are actually multiplying. Uh, we could never get discipleship to go past that first generation, but now since we've defined it uh, more, more clearly, um, you know, I think one of Bill's uh, lines uh, is ambiguity is our enemy, uh, clarity is our friend. And so having clarity around definitions helps you to do a lot of that. You know, uh, for a lot of churches, nickels and noses have been the measurement, right? So how much money comes in, how many people are there? So attendance becomes the end of disciple making. If you show up, you're good, right? I, I'm not against nickels and noses. I think it is a measurement, but when it, when it becomes the end, it becomes the wrong end. Um, and so I think one of the things, I fully agree with everything both of you guys said. I think one other thing is to go back to Scripture and look at the metrics that Jesus put in place and that the New Testament writers put in place. What is the evidence of spiritual growth? What is the evidence of spiritual maturity? It's fruitfulness, right? And so you go back to Galatians 5, and in your discipling relationships, to go a level deeper maybe, are they exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? Is that growing and changing in their relationship with spouses, with children, with coworkers? Um, you know, one of the most depressing things, and, and, and but it's also revealing, is you have, say, a guy comes to my discipleship group, and I've got four guys in my discipleship group right now, um, younger than me, and they'll come and say, I love Jesus, here's what God taught me out of Scripture, but I almost cussed out my coworker this week. Right? I say, okay, okay, what do we need to work on then? What does the Spirit need to be doing in you then? Let's, how do we look more like Jesus this week? How is that going to affect your prayer life? Where do you need to go in Scripture to find that? And all of a sudden, we're, we're using biblical metrics for spiritual growth, which kind of makes sense, right? And so, yeah, that's a little subjective. You can't necessarily put that on, a, on an Excel spreadsheet, but that's where stories and narrative come in, Right? in helping us to tell the story of what God's doing in his body as people are growing and changing. One of the greatest things we started in our church with men's D groups, discipleship groups, and discipleship groups, by the way, is not the end of your disciple making. They are a means, they're a form and a, an environment, if you want to use that word, of disciple making, but it's not the whole thing. But we started some, some discipleship groups among our men. They started meeting about six months later. Our ladies came to us and were jealous. They said, my husband's changing. What are you doing to him? He's loving me more. He's being more patient. I want what he's getting. Where can I get involved in this? And all of a sudden, we had this explosion of ladies' discipleship that started within the life of our church as well, right? Because life change and narrative became a metric where we saw something changing in the life of our local church. Yeah, the life of our local church, uh, just, just so you understand, we've been in this process in my context for two years now, and we've never had one announcement about it. The culture is changing on the back end because we're not trying to change the paint, if you will. We're trying to change from the roots, right? We're trying to go down all the way to the foundation and change it from the, from the ground up versus putting a veneer on it. What else? Other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, um, Jesus had several hundred followers, but he focused on 12, and of those 12, he focused on three. I guess one challenge with discipleship I see is sometimes it does get a lot with the head, mm -hmm, yeah. and there's some people that aren't head-oriented, right. they're other-oriented, actually. So, so as in your making discipleship, 
throughout your church, that culture, how do you do that in a way that doesn't just appeal to the top head folks? Well, and again, you've got two dynamics. I, I said this the last time, you know, when I was explaining what the Bonhoeffer Project does, somebody, you know, the, the idea, it, it can sound almost overcomplicated. Discipleship isn't overcomplicated. People are, right? So you deal with the dynamics of who you're ministering to. Now, first and foremost, I would say it's always about the Holy Spirit in governing the time that you have together with them. And there is kind of in the metrics that we're talking about as well, information dissemination is a good thing, right? The Bible is an informative book, so we do have information, information transfer. We've got to take that into consideration. But really, to more Jim's point, what he was saying, has the information transferred the 12 inches from the head to the heart? And are we seeing life change? If not, that's where the discipler needs to dig into the disciplee and start saying, what's the disconnect? Because, again, it's not about quizzes and tests and did you get all the answers right? And if you don't have this memory verse... And the reference, you're probably not a disciple. We're not doing that. But again, that's where when we say don't announce the revolution, just begin. You can't start necessarily with these big swaths of people and expect it to go up. You start, right? That's why this whole this whole session was you can't buy your way out of it. It's got to go to the senior leader. If you're not discipling someone and recognizing the nuances in discipling someone who's got a doctorate or someone who's got a GED, Right, you're not going to see the nuances of how to shepherd your people into a disciple-making relationship or teaching them how to raise up leaders to do the same. Anybody else got it? Can I just say yeah. I, I love that question because I think you know so many times our minds just go to like discipleship is a class right. or discipleship. Some people are like discipleship is one-on-one -on -one or disciple. And it's like yes, it can be all those things or it can be none of those things. Um, and I, I think if you think about discipleship, there's a structural piece to our church because we don't want people falling through the cracks. But there's this organic piece, too, that's more like parenting. You know, it's, it's why when you, when you have a baby, they don't give a baby a book to go home with. They send him home with parents, right? Because the book can't adapt to the baby's needs, but the parents can. And the parents are sitting back going, okay, what, what do we need to adjust here? Uh, one of our mantras at our church is we say disciple-making is built on relationship. It's fueled by intentionality, and it's lived out through creativity. And some, for some people that are very concrete and they're thinking, the creativity part freaks them out. You're like, well, what am I supposed to create, you know? And it's like, well, it just means that you you got to find a way to do it. You got I, I, Through your question, there's a guy in our church, the guy that taught me to serve is a guy that I consider a disciple of mine, um, but he is not a guy that's going to just sit at a table with me and let's go do a study together. It's just not him. He's a surfer, okay? That's just not, not him. And so a lot of our discipling have him sitting on a surfboard, you know, he's discipling me how to ride a wave, which is tough. The guy's 37 from Alabama. Um, and I'm doing the same thing with him in life. You know, I'm coming back from a wave and he and I'm like, dude, what happened? Why didn't I why didn't I catch that? Well, you went you tried to go for it too early um, or you were too far back on the board. So you just came over the back of the wave. And I'm doing the same thing with him in life. And we're talking about his marriage. We're talking about his kids. We're talking about his devotional life with God. Um, and so we never sat down. Never sat down in a class or in a cohort, um, but for two years, spent time on ways together. So, what else? Other questions over here to the left. Uh, you talked about the need to shepherd your church through change, mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't agree more. But the practical how of that, sure, um, mm -hmm. and, and I'm sure that varies. Um, but just just some insight. Um, Brief, brief thing. Our, our church is, our church is uh, old and small, um, so there's context that you can imagine. There. Let me give you from practical examples that I've just went through over this past year. COVID, I will tell you this, helped me out, okay, because everything shut down. And when everything shut down, there was stuff that we just didn't bring back. It was a blessing, right? But there were other things that people wanted to keep. One of them was a, a women's mentoring ministry that was in direct conflict with our disciple-making culture that we're trying to build. So we had to sit down with them. We, we had actually four separate meetings with these ladies. They've been doing this for years. This is Their identity was in this ministry. 
through these conversations, they started to realize their identity was in the ministry, not in Jesus. Their identity was in what they did for Jesus, not in Christ himself. And so having those conversations where it was like this, it was a forum. Hey, this is what we're doing. Let's open up the word. This is where we're going. This is what we're doing. This is why what you're doing fits right into what we're doing. Please come alongside what God's doing through this. Not everybody, like first group was like, yeah, we got that. Okay. Right. So we got a few of them. There was some holdouts, hence meetings two, three, and four. But slowly, again, it's it's more of a, okay, listen, I'm not, we're not making the change right now. Keep meeting with your ladies. Keep doing this women's mentoring you're doing. We'll, we'll revisit this. Pray through it. We'll revisit this in a month. See, again, if you come in with the sledgehammer, this is done, right? We're done with the children's. We're done with the Sunday school. It's over. They're going to vote with their feet and they're just going to leave. But if you get them to understand the why, why are we doing this? This is a, a great thing. It's what really propels the Bonhoeffer Project is why we do. Why are we making disciples? What does it look like when we do? Why is the gospel and its preaching it conducive, important, imperative to the disciples we make? When you get people to understand why you're doing it, all of a sudden, they come along with, side with you. Now, that's a great story. I have another one. Now, listen, please don't throw rocks at me or send me an email. We had a hula ministry at our church. Amen. Okay, we're a lot of a lot of Samoans, a lot of Islanders in San Diego area, especially in Oceanside where I'm at. We had a schism within the hula ministry. Did you lead? Were you and leading the? I was in it and leading it. Yes. <laughs> I know you all the questions. Are you? No, no, this is a schism. We had hula factions. With warring hula factions in our church, and I'm not making this up. There was a part of me that's like, why? Do, what is a hula ministry? <laughs> like, are there islanders that needed this? And were like, now I know Jesus. That one didn't go as well. That one didn't go as well because I had to ask a hard question. How does this bring people to know Jesus? It, it got to a, a rough spot. And to this day, there's, there's those who don't talk and those who don't talk to me. There's still a few that still come to the church that are probably a little bitter. They're, they're, they're getting it and some that still give me the, the evil eye. Not all of them are going to come through, right? We, we can't have the mindset that it, in culture change, everyone's going to be like, wow, amazing, right? There's going to be a lot who go, you know what, pastor, I just don't see it. And I'm going to go down the street. But here's the other, this is what I want you to hold on to. When I came in, again, this is seven, eight years ago, I came in to um, change, revamp, pivot our men's ministry. Day one, I had, there's 10 leaders in that men's ministry. I had seven of them step down. A year, between a year and two and a half years later, four of the seven came back. They went, checked out. This guy's out to lunch. And then they saw what else was out there. And they're like, well, you know what? I guess Dan's not so half bad. But what it was is kind of like you're talking about those stumps. They started seeing the growth. They started seeing what God was doing. They started seeing the depth of character that the men were building. And they just started saying, man, maybe we missed it. Maybe we had it wrong. Now, not a single one of them came up and apologized to me. <laughs> but their presence there meant the world to me. I knew it was one of those, you just give the head nod, you know what's up. And that was what really uh, kind of made it. So you're going to have all sorts of them. But don't, don't look at losses as a negative thing. Because some of those losses are God, you know, it's the blessed subtraction. God's getting them out of your way because they need to go uh, down this way. Destruction of the flesh stuff. God needs to deal with that in them on his terms. And then sometimes God might win, uh, you know, win them back to what God's doing in you, in your culture, in your context. Um, with that said, I want to just close here real quick with just kind of a uh, letting you guys know. Some of you guys are sitting here going, well, what is the Bonhoeffer Project? What do you guys do? We are uh, a, a group that comes together and we, we have these cohorts. A cohort is just a group of people, 6 to 10, 12. You know, we've had bigger ones. We've had smaller ones. And we lead you through a 10-month process where we help you to understand how to make and develop a plan of a disciple-making culture. But we do something that's a little different than what everybody else does. 
we go up to the headwaters. We go upstream into what we call the upstream, the gospel, right? The gospel you preach determines the disciple you make. So we want to make sure that that upstream is correct. Then we get into the definitions of what a disciple is and what it is in your context. Again, we, we use scripture. I don't want you know, just come up with your own random definitions. We use scripture to define what these things are. And then we help you craft a plan for making disciples in your context, whether you're a senior pastor, an associate pastor, a ministry leader, a lay leader, a business person, heck, in your neighborhood. You want to know how to make your neighbors into disciples, and you're like, how do I do this? What is a plan that I could come up with? So these cohort leaders will sit down with you through this 10-month process and help you develop this plan for making disciples who then go and make disciples Listen, when we're done here, uh, we would love to sit and talk with any of you. We'll be at the table. But again, if you've got any questions, again, I'm Dan. That's Cindy. She's our COO. We got Jim. He's in charge of our leader training. Um, we'd love to answer questions for you out at the tables. Thank you guys for coming out. Let me pray us out real quick. Father, thank you so much. Bless these on their way. And he travels today. God, would you bless them and honor the time that they've given here. Bless them. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming out. Well, there you have it. That was the Bonhoeffer Project's last track session from the National Disciple Making Forum. Hope that you enjoyed that episode. Hey, if you've been enjoying what you've been hearing, I want to ask you to click subscribe to this channel. That way you can always stay up to date every time that I release a new episode. All right. Thanks in advance for that. And I hope that you have a great rest of your day and I'll see you on the next episode.